This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Today's secret word is Sapir Wharf. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is M.K. Martin. M.K. Martin is a motorcycle riding combat veteran turned linguistics nerd. When not working on her stories, Martin loves to read speculative fiction, drink tea, and vigorously defend the serial comma. She currently lives in southwestern Ireland, which is every bit as magical as you'd imagine. Welcome, Molly. Are you? I, I should ask first. Uh, should I call you Molly or M.K. or Martin or what should I call you throughout the show? Do you want to be Molly publicly? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, I will answer to either Molly or Martin. Um, I think I, I picked MK just as a pen name. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit of a shout out to, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. So, uh, I see, I see. Like if I could just borrow that, like, cool uh, middle K initial thing that she's got going on. Yes. Yes. I love her work. Um, I got to meet her, got a signed copy of one of her books at one point for, for Noah. Nice. Uh, yeah. She's very cool. She was, uh, she presented and uh, read a bunch of, she was into German poetry at the time, translations of German poetry. She's just brilliant. I mean, yeah, that, so yes, good, good person to shout out to. Um, so as, uh, as viewers of the show know, we always dress up in costume like this. We should explain mm-hmm. our costumes to the, to the folks who are on the podcast. So what did you choose to wear for a costume today? Um, so I am, am wearing the, um, uh, the uniform of a dragoon in the English military as, um, I am paying homage to, um, one of the famous women of Ireland who followed her husband into the army and um concealed her identity and dressed as a man and fought in several wars and was wounded and um sort of um eventually retired with a pension and the whole deal so um it's one of the things that i think is important to push back at against the the idea that women have not been involved in combat um my my kiddo's very much um a big <laughs> fan of lord of the rings at this point. And so she loves the line from Eowyn where she says, um, those who don't have swords have learned, have long ago learned that we can still die on them. And it's, it's very much the case that women have always been involved in combat either as collateral damage or as support and often as combatants themselves. Yes. And so in, in honor of that, I uh, am dressed as Elsie Inglis, uh, I got this jaunty hat on with a feather, but then the the, the actual uh, costume itself is uh, very much a British officer's dress uniform, or at least that's what it looks like to me, only in a women's cut. So, you know, clearly there was a recognition that women were serving, uh, which means for me, it's quite tight in the waist. Uh, um, mm. But, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going for the part because Elsie Inglis was a surgeon uh, and a supporter of the women's suffrage movement. Uh, and when World War One broke out, she offered her services to the Royal Army Medical Corps in 1914. 
um, but she was told to go home and sit still. And instead she went, no, I'm not going to do that. And she started the Scottish Women's Hospitals uh, and treated troops in Serbia and Russia. And she was the first woman to be awarded the Order of the White Eagle, the highest honor given by Serbia. And she and her team eventually had to be, you know, escaped out of there uh, when the Ref Russian Revolution hit in 1917. And this is the tragic part. When she got home to England, she died from cancer the day she got home. Oh, so she served uh, in, you know, in a combat situation as a surgeon to the end of her life uh, quite heroically. So uh, an offer of Elsie Inglis and you're dressed as uh, Christian Davies. We've got yep. women who served in combat today. Speaking of women serving in combat, we should tell the the uh, listeners you served as well. You served in the army in Iraq, and where else? Um, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that. That I, I I thank you for your service, of course, and uh, that that is very cool to have you know you uh, dressed in you know in in to to memorialize that today. Yeah, I think for me it's kind of a it's it's kind of a, a complicated situation because um the older I get, sort of the less I agree with a lot of the US's military adventures. Um but I also continue, like I said, I think it's very important that we don't um hide or erase the contributions of all the multiple kinds of people who have always been involved in the military and we don't get a lot of credit for. Yeah. Well, and I'm a public school teacher, and I understand feeling conflicted about our institutions. <laughs> you know, well, you're basically for... in the military yourself. Yeah, I, I am. A, I am a government employee, and I, you know, serve the public in that way. And yet, I know schools have often been a an institution designed to maintain the status quo uh, at the expense of people who are struggling and uh, and are marginalized. And so, I feel that conflicted sense of. You know, we can do individually good work within institutions that often do bad work, and that's that is hard uh, thing to 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 carry. Um, so, and you served for how long? Um, I was in, oh gosh, all told, I think eight years. Yeah. Um, I was I was serving in the National Guard first, and then I switched over to the regular army. So I had had two different um kind of terms of service, and the National Guard was. Much more fun because we got to go to Hawaii instead of Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, you know, not knocking Afghanistan, but Hawaii is more fun. I think we, everyone can agree. Uh, yeah, that that uh, that it's a very different uh, different feel. <laughs> so, uh, what has been your favorite distraction this last week uh, from your writing? Mm, oh, that's a good question. Um, my favorite distraction. I think we have had a lot. Well, okay. I will say as a parent, one of my, my perennial favorite distractions is um, dealing with my kiddo who is now out of school and back in camp. Um, so that's good. I'm trying to pull up. I know I had written a bunch of um, yes, you had really some interesting here. things. Yes. But I did want to books. talk about. Yes. Uh... Yeah, I always so, encourage everybody to have both screens up and I'll chop this out. But uh, yeah, if you've got both, in, no, none of my questions will surprise you. Yeah, let me just pull up my my thing, which if I was smart, I would have had up. 
because I love the books you mentioned. I'm like, yes, I've read those within the last year myself and love them. All right. Um, okay, so I'm going to start over again, and I'll say, um, so... <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> a little tough. Okay, uh, so, uh, yeah, so what is something, you know, on the show about procrastination, uh, and we should mention, you had a book come out yourself this last week, uh, and so that is very exciting, and so what has now been distracting you as you kind of get a little post-book break? Mm. So one of the things that I love to do, of course, is reading, which I think every author has to do. And right now I'm in the middle of two series, um, uh, Fonda Lee's Green Bone series and N.K. Jameson's Inheritance series. Um, so I had read N.K. Jameson's, um, I can't remember the name of the series, but it starts out with fifth season. Yes. Just amazing. Uh, what is that um, called? It is brilliant. Oh, Broken Earth. That's the name yes. of the series, the Broken Earth series. And so I'd gotten into the, I, for a long time, I have this problem when I read a really, really good book that I'm almost afraid to read another one by that author because I'm like, the high was so good. Yeah. I'm just afraid to read something else in case it's not as good, but it is as good. So you can rest assured yes. they are both just as good. Um, and for different reasons, one is much more of, um, uh, science fiction and the other is much more in the the realm of fantasy and the voice um, but the, like the the I, I tell folks the broken earth one you have to kind of power through the beginning because it is yeah. in this uh uh you know second person uh i mean it, it, uh, there, there's no such thing as second person it is still told in this first person but it is the the protagonist is told to you and yes. so you, it takes a while to get used to the fact that the character being described is not you. It's this woman who is, you know, going through, I mean, it's very clear right from the beginning that the you that is being spoken to is not you, the reader, but uh, it takes a while to get used to that. And so I, I, I know folks who said I couldn't get through that, but once you get used to it, it's a marvelous series. Whereas the inheritance books are told in a more traditional way, but yeah, they're yeah. so good. I think too with the Broken Earth series, if you go into it knowing that there's some timeline wonkiness and mm. you just know that going in, you'll be a little bit better prepared to read it. Yeah, but yeah, I, 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 that trilogy is a masterpiece. People will be reading that for a hundred years. Like I, I love that series. Um, and the Inheritance books are are really wonderful as well. They're they're they are more comfortable, I think, for people. Well, the problem that I had, and I'll tell you, um, some of some of your your fans and my readers may know I had a writing residency where I went to Iceland for a month to do most of the work on book three, which is almost done. Um, and while I was there, silly me, I brought um, both book one of the Greenbone Jade City is book one. So I brought Jade City and I brought... Um, Oh gosh, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, which is book one of the Inheritance series. So I brought two book ones, but just book ones, <laughs> and no book twos because I was like, I'm going to be there for a month. I'm doing my own work. I won't. I will have very little time to read other people's books, and I don't know how much I'll like either of these. So I'll just bring book one of either. And I was so sad because I finished both of them within you know a very short amount of time, and then I was like, well, now I'm here for a month. And it's oh. not even worth it to try to to get something over on the post. 
Yeah, those were uh, ones where I finished the first book and immediately bought the second. Like, yes. Was, so like, just just do yourself a favor, get all three books yeah. from the get go, and just read them one after another, because otherwise you'll be very sad. Yeah, that is excellent advice. Nobody should have one of those. <laughs> you will not want to stop. <laughs> They're so good. Well, I uh, gave a shout out to Fonda Lee's uh, uh, Green Bone uh, trilogy. Is it a trilogy? I'm trying to remember how it's, many books I, that's it, It's a trilogy, and I believe there's either a short story or another yeah. novella that's like set in the world of. Um, um, and so I, I was I was talking about that with my guest last week, and thought, why not? And so I reached out to Fonda Lee, and Fonda Lee's going to be a guest on the show, probably <gasps> not till like yeah uh, January or February of next year. But uh, yeah, folks, keep keep uh, watching the show because I will have Fonda Lee on. But yeah, that uh, that. Uh, Pulling in the big names. Yeah, well, uh, that series is so fantastic. I, I think she is doing some really, really, you know, I, I think it would have been kind of superficial to just say, oh, okay, I'm going to take fantasy and I'm going to do this fantasy thing, but with, you know, Kung Fu and Jade Magic. Like, she goes so far beyond that into this really evolved, complex world. I tell folks it's kind of kung fu movie meets the godfather meets i, yeah. I do not describe was, it well i was describing really it as um the sopranos but yes. like with kung fu with kung fu and magic like and magic so yeah good. uh so yeah I, I and remarkably well written like there are these passages where i would just be crying <laughs> you know some character would die and i'd be going no i hated them and then came to love them and now they're dead like yeah she uh she she's which is very kind of sopranos-esque or whatever where she'll take a character and she they're they are flawed the people are not universally you know the good guy the bad guy but then you just love them so deeply and then yeah the people die because you know mm -hmm. it's a, a crime family so yeah it's uh it is totally people should check those out those yeah i will say there was there were some characters that um when the character and it was very clear to me at the time the the characters i'll say characters had died um and and i was flipping through the rest of the book because i'm like there's no way there's yeah. no way that this character nope she did she, she killed that character it. off completely yeah, she there, there were those, you know, those, you know, we talk about killing your darlings and it's often, you know, killing that that phrase that you uh, that you love so much, but it doesn't fit or that paragraph. But sometimes killing your darlings is a person. Right? Sometimes <laughs> it is a character and to be able to to to, you know, pull it off and not, you know, to resist the temptation to go, I'll magically bring this character back. Like, no, they need to go for the sake of the plot. And she uh, had a lot of guts to say, you're going to die. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but even in the very first book, they're like, no way, no way this character can die. Yeah. No, they're really dead. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So good. Uh, so what about news? What in the, the world of the news has been pulling you away from your writing? Hmm. Um, so I, think I, I i had thought about it and i said eh, not to be too bleak but the sort of fascist takeover of much of the u.s is and and being here in ireland i think sometimes um we we don't see the day-to-day -day news so we kind of just see the i'll say highlights but i don't know if i really mean highlights um so we only see kind of you know when the supreme court goes out of session and they're just like let's just drop this clinker and take off. Um, and which I did 
I was I was very interested to notice, for example, their decision on affirmative action where they said um, Ivy League schools can't use affirmative action to um, make sure that they have diverse enrollments, but the military academies uh-huh. can. And yep. that, again, as as a person with a military background, I'm like, oh, it's it's very telling to me of where you think that you know black and brown Americans should be, and where you don't think that they should be. Yep, I mean, so it, that was one of those. You're you're telling on yourselves. You are mm-hmm. revealing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what you think is important. Um, yeah, that was that was striking, and the fact that they didn't go after uh, legacies. You know, so exactly. Totally fine Which, to have uh, affirmative action for rich white people, um, but. Yeah, that's um, otherwise known as, you know, all of American history, (laughs) basically affirmative action for rich white people. Yep. And so, yeah, that that case was, you know, not surprising and at the same time disappointing. Like it is. We saw this is where you were going to go. So, yeah. But then the 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 one that was, I think, even more egregious was the uh, the one about the uh, ability for private businesses that serve the public to mm-hmm. decide based on religious grounds that they didn't have to serve LGBTQIA plus folks. And mm-hmm. that was just, you know, it, it well, ugh. and the person, I believe the the person who filed the lawsuit hadn't even been materially harmed in any way and was just totally theoretically fake. like, I want a, a free pass ahead of time for my bigotry. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, Catholic dispensation. <laughs> like, mm. I want to be able to commit this sin in the future. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's it, That was very frustrating to watch. The dissents were wonderful, though. Uh, uh, Sotomayor wrote the dissent in that one. And it is just this powerful uh, dissent where she says this, you know, this is this is enshrining a caste system. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not something we would allow in any other setting for people who are committed to serve the public to then discriminate against a protected class. And you have done that. And uh, and and then one of the things that's traditional is the court always says, respectfully, I dissent at the end. Mm-hmm. And she didn't include the word respectfully. And it was like, no, I'm going out of my way to break this tradition. This is not worthy of respect. And so I was like, good for you, Sotomayor. But, uh, <laughs> you know, those dissents are just historical documents to kind of say there were people who opposed this. Uh, yeah. Law is now in favor of, uh, you know, transphobia and, and homophobia. And, and so that is, yeah, it's it's a scary time. On the other hand, I do wonder about your perspective when you are seeing it in in these flashes you know and it's often the 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 worst uh you know does it yeah you know how do you feel watching the are you you know reading the guardian i mean what are you i know you're on twitter as well uh which is a horrible way to perceive uh anything (laughs) no you don't get (laughs) you you don't get any legitimate news from twitter anymore so i think we all know that you would find out like uh um when michael brown was killed in uh in st louis Twitter was this source of news, you know, mm-hmm. where you were getting what is actually happening on the ground before news sources even knew or fully understood it. And the journalists have left the on the yeah, ground reporting yeah. has just gone. en masse. Yeah. Uh, um, I think so. One of the really interesting experiences that we have had since being here is sort of trying to explain American America to the Irish. Um, And a lot of times they're sort of almost embarrassed to ask questions they'll come up and just kind of with a little a little laugh and haha so is it true that you can go into a store where you buy groceries and clothes and you can buy a gun there we're like 
Oh yeah, you definitely can. Just just show up and buy a gun. Yep. And I was at um I was actually at a grocery store one day and these two um two two lads um they were they were um stocking the shelves and they had a, um a big like a bunch of boxes in between me and them so they didn't see that I was there. And they were just playing like like they were just talking to each other. And the one of them says, hello, I'm an American and I would like to buy a gun. And the other one says, well, do you have an ID? And he says, no, but I'd really like a gun. And then the first one says, well, good enough. Here you go. I mean, and I was like, this is this is their sort of like portrayal this is their understanding of americans and i'm like but it's not wrong it's yeah unfortunately i was gonna say that's true you know i literally was at a uh, a gun show one time and the guy was like if we step out into the parking lot mm -hmm. then i can make you another deal like yeah you can buy trunk guns no problem yeah, yeah i mean the the system is so fundamentally broken that it's all favors how do we make sure you get a gun you know and i will say um so there's another American family. The The school that my kiddo goes to here um, is a pretty diverse school. It's not a parish school. Um, so there tend to be a lot of, of people from the rest of Europe who are not necessarily, you know, excited about sending their child to a Catholic school. And there's another American family there. And at the end of school year, they were doing like a, a costume party or no, it was before the, the Halloween break. So they were doing a costume party and all the parents were standing around, out, around outside um, waiting for the kids to come out and, you know, just talking and talking and talking. All of a sudden we hear this just chorus of screams and yells and just chaos erupting from the school. And myself and the other American parents were flipping out. Like you could just see our, our eyes were widening. We're about to start running up to the school and none of the Irish parents even moved because it didn't even occur to them that their children would be in danger in school. Yeah. Yeah. And what did it turn out to be? Um, they were doing a parade of costumes. So yeah. as, as the first teacher, the principal came out and she was dressed in her costume and everybody started cheering and screaming for her. And that's what we were hearing. And, and that's yeah. what it was. And it's just, it's so innocent. And yeah. I mean, and that's awesome. It, it, it's hard for us to go. That's a policy choice. This is a, mm -hmm. a choice a society has made that when there is loud screams, it, they are of joy, or when there are loud screams, you should run and you should check on the safety of your child. This is a choice we have made, and we have decided to be a place where schools are, in the United States, where schools are potentially deadly, scary places. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's a, I think that's a hard thing to, like, when we come to that realization, you know, this is this is not aberrant, this is not... Oh, if one lone wolf does this thing, like this is a system. This is a yeah. choice we've made. Uh, and that that's uh, that is hard for me to square when I hear about one of these shootings and I'm so afraid for my own school and my own students. And then I'm saying, you know, I can't dismiss this as this is this one person. Like mm -hmm. the people in my community, every time they take a vote are deciding on that and they are mm -hmm. deciding that's okay. And, and they're deciding that's okay for me and for my students. And, and you know, and, and that's, it makes it hard to be motivated to go back into a school building every day, knowing this community has decided that this is okay for all of our schools. Uh, so yeah. that's that it's, it's rough. Uh, I, I would love to be in a place where the, the, the screaming is of joy.
<laughs> you know, that's that's where, uh, you know, and, and that's a choice we could make. That's what's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's. Well, I'm, I'm continually sorry that you and every other teacher and every school child in, in the U.S. has to deal with it constantly. I was thinking about sort of my generation, um, you know, the, the older, what would we be at? generation X or older millennials um, that were sort of the last generation that didn't grow up with the idea of school shootings as a routine part of our experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're about the same age. Columbine, I would think, I think I was in college uh, and that was, you know, very, very scary, but it, the first time it's this isolated event, right. And you're going, mm-hmm. Oh, that's this horrific tragedy. Uh, now we're at, I don't even want to know how many over the course of yeah. this year. And it's no, this is, this is a system. This is the way it works. Uh, so yeah, that is, it is, uh, scary and it does change our, our, our valence. And it also changes the, the way the kids are looking at it is this is normal. You know, this is their, their experience. What you do these drills because this happens, well, and, you know, this is honestly, this is part of the, the big reason why we, we moved to Ireland is my kiddo having to go through in their school, having to go through and they were, I don't know, four or five, you know, just very, very tiny child coming back and saying, mom, why would somebody come to my school and try to kill me? Mm-hmm. That's a valid question. It, you know. it is a very good uh, question. In here in Oregon, we, the way our, our legal system is set up, somebody could walk into our school building with an AR fit loaded AR 15. And until they level it and point it at someone, they have not broken any laws. And the mm. only thing that the school resource officer could do is come out and say, we would like you to leave. And then when the person says, I refuse to leave, then they could get a charge of uh, trespassing. But it is that'll legal, that'll right? definitely stop somebody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's we've designed the system so that you're not breaking the law until you basically pull the trigger. Uh, and and because all the rights favor the person holding the gun, not mm. the students. And that's the, that's that conversation about kind of rights and, and and freedoms that we're unwilling to have you know the, the freedom of the person holding the gun is absolute and when you talk to the the second amendment folks they're going this there can be no infringement and i'm saying okay but we infringe on for example the the you know free speech rights to say but you can't mm-hmm. yell fire in a theater you know can can there be some limits for the sake of the safety of others nope well no. and also the amendment itself says well-regulated militia yeah. and yeah. i've got news for for people some some sad person living in their you know hovely basement watching andrew tate videos 24 7 is not a part of a well-regulated anything well and that's the thing is it is the only time in the constitution that it says something will be well regulated like mm-hmm. this you know and so the folks who are saying there can be no regulation if you're going to say because of the constitution what does well-regulated mean? Well-regulated is essential to that amendment. So can and, we honestly say this is well-regulated? Yeah. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've gotten onto the hobby horse section. Yes, but I mean, this is, you know, this is, and, and but I, I think I, I am curious about when you're seeing it now, you know, living in Ireland and you're seeing through the news, it has got to be 
really challenging to go how, how just how, you know the, if it bleeds it leads and so the, those mm-hmm. stories that are the most egregious are you know, the, you know there are no news stories that say and then today in independence oregon nothing really happened <laughs> like yeah. so you know does it skew your view of it does it does it look a lot more grim than uh than it actually is or you know is uh you, you know, know it probably does um again just because we we kind of only get the headlights and the highlights and and you know when something filters up to the point where you know the irish will actually notice what's going on in the u.s and most of the time it's um they're they're fascinated by big tornadoes because there's no tornadoes here um and uh, wildfires and things like that because it just i mean this country is basically a sponge it has never been dry and so trying to (laughs) like, like what do you mean a wildfire a what now like the grass would burn (laughs) that's true that's true the peat bogs don't really burn they uh (laughs) no not so much i mean you can dig them up and dry them out and then you can burn them but it it takes a bit of work to set anything on fire in ireland (laughs) that's right yes it's hard work to make a fire (laughs) it's it's thousands of years of people working very hard to uh create fire in ireland oh i do love it there though it is it is so beautiful and you're in county i'm in Kerry. so it's the very southwest corner yeah and it, oh, it's beautiful it's, it's beautiful it's just i mean we we went out one day and we saw four rainbows in the day and one of them was a double rainbow and we're just like this is ridiculous and i feel like this is a bit much ireland and you could probably just scale it back slightly yeah t- tone it down ireland you're, you're, you're you don't have to sell us we already live here <laughs> yeah. oh, that that sounds fantastic um so what about hobbies what has been uh, what has been a hobby that's been pulling you away from your writing lately mm, well okay since we were already talking about how gorgeous it is where i live i'll say long walks on the beach because i live five minutes away from the irish atlantic ocean i can literally go out of my door and be on one of the most beautiful so they call you know a long strip of stra- of sand is called a strand so we've got a strand um that we can walk along and there's a part of the strand further off in one direction that's one of the blue flag beaches where there's a lot of surfers and things like that. But our part of the strand, there's nobody there. Uh-huh. Um, and so we just can walk along the strand and look across to the mountains um, that are over on the peninsula across from us. And there's clouds going across them. And I basically, like, I, I live in Middle Earth, so. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it would lend itself to writing fantasy, which is not what you write. <laughs> well, and and um, I mentioned my kiddo is very into Lord of the Rings at this point. Um, and we had found out that J.R.R. Tolkien had spent a good amount of time in Ireland before and during writing The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and The Selmarillion and all of that. Um, and so we're like, yeah, you can really tell. First of all, every time they stop, they need to have tea. So like, obviously they're Irish. breakfast is a really like that's a non-negotiable you will have breakfast and it will be enormous so just make peace with that yes yes that was uh you know i am not a big breakfast eater and i was like oh that 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 is culturally not fitting here everybody is having you know marvelous breakfasts (laughs) you know a a simple breakfast is a bigger than i am eating uh, normally Hmm. yeah so Um, yeah that's yeah. And I think the other thing that I, I do like to do, which kind of doesn't doesn't quite fit in the, the vibe here, is I like to go to cafes and write because that's always if I'm at home, 
I get very distracted. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always housework to do, there's chores to do, and there's also video games that desperately need to be played. Um, So if I leave, then I can get some work done. So I'll go to a cafe and a lot of folks, um, if they go to a cafe, they'll, they'll sit for several hours, but it's usually with somebody else. And it's usually because they're talking like socializing is, is a really big and important part of how people conduct their lives. So having one person sitting in a cafe by themselves, bit strange. Yeah. People are like, that's weird. You're, you're, you've, you've come to a public place and you are not and you're alone yeah Yeah, but i like i like sort of the the strangeness of being a stranger here because anything that i do that's weird they're like oh it's because she's an american right right. i don't realize it's just because i'm actually strange well and a writer is strange like you know yes okay we are also these people who craft you know, 120,000 word stories were weird. <laughs> you know? mm. So you can go, yeah, an American writer. I'm, you know, that, that is kind of odd. You know? <laughs> when you're sitting there crying as you, you know, writing the death of that beloved character, sobbing into your latte in the, in the cafe. And they're like, okay. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm crying over a made up person. This is what we do. Like, <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So also you ride your, you, you know, like riding your motorcycle. How I is do. that? in ireland um so the weather is is fairly mild all year round um you cannot convince the irish of that because they'll tell you oh you know it's very cold in winter you know it gets down to like 40 degrees (laughs) just frigid um i i think it does get much colder or or cold enough to snow up north but where we are you know we've had like a a very ill-tempered frost at one point, and that was about the yeah. extent of it. So you could you could pretty much ride all year round, except for the rain. So you do absolutely have to get yourself some good rain leathers. Um, and then most of the time, we, we've come up with the word mizzling, which is a combination of mist and drizzling. So yeah. it's mizzling. Um, so if it's mizzling, because we have that in Oregon, yeah, we get yeah. mizzling. Well, that's that's the thing is I had lived in Oregon for for. Um, quite a while and i feel like it really prepared me for moving to ireland and we get asked they're like aren't you worried about the rain when you moved here i was like no yeah that's par for the course i yeah, there are parts of oregon where i'll drive through and i'll go this looks so much like you know being in ireland like that mm-hmm. you know, the, when the when the when everything is green pre-august <laughs> you know, yeah very very much like ireland and then it all dies in august and then it's all back but uh, yes, we have we have some Irish scenery at places, but and we also have that constant spitting, the you know mm-hmm. mizzling. Mizzling is so much nicer than spitting. Spitting sounds unsanitary, but yes, the constant <laughs> uh, the the constant mist drizzle. Um, but but as far as folks on the road, are you driving your motorcycle the same one that you had out here? Yeah, um, that's we, a bigger we, bike we, than folks in Ireland are used to, right? <laughs> it is. Um, it's not the only one though, but most of the bikes here tend to be, um, smaller. Mine is, is a bit on the big side. Um, but I, I, I'm glad that I brought it. Um, I had gone through this thing, uh, right before we moved, we were talking to our neighbors about what we were bringing with us and what we were getting rid of. And we were going to get rid of the car because there's, it's, it's, you know, far too expensive to bring a car over and then have it retrofitted to have the steering wheel on the other side and all of that. Um, and I said, yeah, and I have to get rid of the motorcycle too. You know, they, they drive on the left, they drive on the other side of the road from Americans. 
And my neighbor looked at me and she said, it's a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't know why, because in my head, I was like, no, I can't bring an American motorcycle to Ireland. They drive on the other side of the road. <sighs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Still works. Um, and Not, and not one are... of my best moments. <laughs> but folks are cool. I mean, do you get a lot of looks when you're in traffic? No, not a ton. I, um, so the motorcycle culture, kind of as as with most things in, in Ireland, and I don't want to, to downplay um, the seriousness of a lot of the issues that, that Irish people are grappling with. Um, but as with a lot of things that I've found in Ireland, it's just there's there's really like a kindness and a friendliness to a lot of things. Um, so the, the motorcycle community by and large, you know, they'll, they'll wave to each other. It's sort of the same thing as in the U S but the problem is in the U S because you're, you're riding on the right and the other rider is riding on the right as well. If you see another rider, you can do like the little two finger salute. Um, but you can't do that in Ireland because you're on the opposite sides of the road. So you can't take your finger, your hand off the throttle to wave to them with the other hand. Um, so now we just have to, you know, very decorously nod to each other instead yeah. of waving. Interesting. I would not have thought of that, but where the throttle is. Yeah, that's that you don't switch the throttle on your bike when you switch the sides of the road like you can do with the steering wheel. Yeah, that's uh, so uh, the point of the show is to help uh, readers get to know, you know, their next favorite writer. And so if uh, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, if you've ever, if folks out there have ever played Dungeons and Dragons, you choose your character and who you choose as a character can be very, very different from you. But Molly, yourself, if you were a and d character, what would be your race and class? Hmm. I mean, I feel like elf or half elf is always my go-to. I've played a lot of D&D um, and I love the the racial in in you know the D and D system. There's always racial bonuses that come with the different races, and the ones that I tend to lean towards are either the elf or the half elf ones. And it's always so fun to be able to say to your dungeon master when they're describing a dark room that I have low light vision. Yeah, I can see in here. I can see in here. Just yeah. you know, just watch them deflate a little bit as yeah. they're like, shoot. Ah. <laughs> and what would be your job? Hmm. I mean, this this one is really just me playing myself as I would be a bard. I love I love the bard class. I feel like it's such a fun class to play. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that you can go with it. And also, um, my personality is sort of the jack of all trades, master of none kind of situation. And I feel like the bard is is really great with that is they're not really good at anything in particular but they're kind of okay at a lot of different things yeah the the the, you know the balanced skills of a half elf bard i mean it's a lot of balanced skills yes i can see that absolutely um so okay now you've been ambushed three Mm. level one these are just level one goblins attack you in the woods you're a half elf bard what do you do um well so obviously first thing you do is roll initiative as as every player knows, roll initiative, um, curse at your dice, and uh, then being a bard, I would talk my way out of the situation. I would recruit the goblins, and I would send them to re- 
to surrounding communities to hype me up before I arrived. There you go. Hype elves or hype goblins. I love it. Hype goblins. Hype goblins. Yes. Everybody <laughs> needs a pack of hype goblins. Which, you know, as writers, we're like, oh, you know, we, we talk all about, you know, oh, we, you need to have this, this team of folks who's going on to social media and who's telling people about your books. Hype goblins is a really good term. Like, And I, I think if instead of calling it my street team, if we called people our hype goblins. Yes. They might be more inclined. I would like to be someone's hype goblin. Yeah. See? Uh, wow. I, I I may have just come up with a new title as a publisher. I'm your <laughs> hype goblin. That's, <laughs> that's great. Okay. We're going to go to our ad break. But when we come back, I'm going to ask you about what you've been daydreaming about lately. Today's show is brought to you by Nancy Ballard's Under Caraco's Moon series. The planet Caraco is short on technology and long on wide open spaces. When Seth Riley returns home to Underrim, it isn't the peaceful village he remembers. Trouble is in the wind, and the new girl in town is at the heart of it. The two of them get in the way of Jurdix, a racketeer with a torture device outlawed throughout the Interstellar Coalition. Unable to cope with what he's suffered, Seth flees to a lonely camp where he becomes obsessed with taming a horse as damaged as he is. She follows, determined to help him. But immersing herself in his troubles and in the challenges of rugged terrain and solitude just helps her deny her own ordeal. Isolation is not a cure, and Jurdix is still out there. Can they stand up to this threat and find the help they both need to heal? The series continues in deep canyons and tricky ground as Seth and Lee discover something that will change the fate of their whole planet. Karen Eisenbray, author of the Rage Brigade duology in the Wizard Girl trilogy, says, This thrilling sci-fi western rides the open range of another world with complex characters caught in a web of conspiracy. And Miko Azul, author of the Demons of Moralia series, says, Distant Trails is a roller coaster ride of pain and despair, love and redemption. Ballard's characters embody both frailty and resilience as they redefine their lives from tragedy to hope. Get your copies of the whole Under Caraco's Moons series today. Welcome back, everybody. So, Molly, what have you been daydreaming about lately? Hmm. Um, I would say languages. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I have a degree in linguistics, and I freaking love languages. Um, I recently took a very short um, holiday to Bruges because... My spouse and I had seen the movie in Bruges a long time ago, and it's gorgeous and a fairy tale town. And I won't say exactly how it was referred to a fairy tale effing town, but you yes. know, put put the accent in there, put the emphasis in there as you like. Um, but it is, it really is, and it's it's beautiful. But while I was there, my my reading material of choice, and I don't know if you're gonna have to bleep this out because it's the title of the book, but the title yeah. of the book is Word Slut. Um, and it's about a feminist reclaiming of the English language. Sort oh, of looking how at. Great, I'm writing yeah. it down. It's so good. Um, yeah. So, and, what are and some and of talking the about that makes? What's that? What are some of the What are some of the ways that that, that helped you look at English differently? Um, so, looking at sort of how did English get to be the way that it is, and why does it why do languages do the things that they do? So I think a lot of times when people think of linguistics, they think um, you're just a polyglot, which is somebody who knows a lot of different languages, which is probably true of most linguists, but doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And what's more the case is that you're really just interested with how language works theoretically overall. 
um, not necessarily this specific language. Um, so you're comparing different languages and seeing um, why do languages do what they do in this way. And one of the things that um, I, I thought was so interesting in the book is they had talked about um, how language changes over time. And a lot of times when we see language change, it's um, young women who are leading the language change, who are experimenting with language and they're pushing it forward. And what they're saying now, our kids will be saying as, you know, just a normal part of their speech. Um, but if you are sort of a conservator of language and you want to know where language has come from, um, you'll talk to what's called the norms, which is the, um, the, oh, I can't remember. It's the non- something rural men. I think it's, uh, and I forget what the O stands for, but, but they're called the norms. So it's, it's, oh, then uh, we'll edit this out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll definitely have thought about it. Um, so anyways, so you, you can look at the norms and they tend to conserve language. And one of the reasons that this tends to happen is because a lot of times, um, you know, in, in the old times when you had sort of more of an apprenticeship system, um, what would happen is, you know, the son would inherit his apprenticeship from his father. Um, dad was a blacksmith. I will be a blacksmith. My son will be a blacksmith. My grandson will be a blacksmith. And so you're only working with the vocabulary of that trade, with people who are interested in that trade, and with people of that class level. Whereas women who are working outside of the home or are going, you know, maybe going as a servant to somebody else's home or they're going to the markets oh. or things like that. Like their ticket to social mobility is being able to code switch and move up and down in different, you know, registers of language. Um, so women tend to be more experimenting with language. And the other thing that they brought up is how marginalized groups um, tend to use language in really creative ways. Like, um, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there was Polari, which is sort of um, a gay dialect that was used primarily in the UK. And it was a way for, you know, LGBT, mostly gay men, um, to speak to each other in public in a way that would keep their identities safe. Um, and sort of as that became less not to say that it isn't still, you know, dangerous and, and fraught, but it, it's less so. And so the need to have a coded secret language has sort of fallen out. Um, but there's these really interesting things about how language, how how minorities and, and, you know, oppressed peoples use language as a way to take power back from, from the other people. Well, and that is, it was really fascinating. I really want to check this out because uh, the, the ways that uh i've read that a lot I, i'm really into linguistics as well I, I love learning about the origin of especially new phrases new words and you're right they often come from marginalized people because they have to like you know mm -hmm. this group of people has to create new language they can't just go with what has been passed down and a lot of the times new phrases and uh language new language that have come to us if you go back four or five hundred years come from two sources they come from prisons and they come from the Navy. And the reason is because th those were some of the only places where people would leave a community and then come back to that community. Mm -hmm. So you, you'd have phrases that would be 
you know, from this small town and they would be kind of fixed in this small town. But if somebody went to jail and needed to use that in a creative way within prison, uh, then it might spread to other communities. And so that's how phrases could kind of break out. And it's interesting for me to think about how a phrase that would have been created by another disempowered group, namely women in a particular community, could then, that could become popular enough to then be, you know, taught to somebody who then goes into the Navy, the Army, you know, has to travel, but who will be returning and become a norm. And then, you know, and, and so you could see these marginalized groups transferring language to other places uh, through those kind of mechanisms. So, I, yeah, I, I'm really excited to see how, because the, the story that I was told, it, it didn't refer to women at all. It was, you know, oh, men who go to jail end up using mm. this phrase, and then men come back and teach it to men who aren't moving around. And then, it, you know, but it totally excised women's creative role in the construction of language uh so that but i i it makes total sense that women would have the most i don't know about flexibility in terms of moving among the uh the 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 you know the power dynamic because they would have been limited in so many ways mm -hmm. in terms of what roles they could have but they would have been exposed right they would have been in you know able to go from the downstairs to the upstairs in the house you know and yeah and uh th yeah that's it's a word slot i will absolutely check that out that's such a good book. Yeah. That's... Um, and then the other thing is, since my, again, my kiddo is enrolled in a school here and part of the mandatory um, education process in, in Ireland is for all children to learn Irish. Um, so my kiddo is learning some Irish and it's, it's really interesting being here because there's so many parallels with um, the Irish and, you know, their history with the, the British and the indigenous peoples of yeah. the U.S. and their history with the various colonizers that were there, not, you know, not only the British, but, you know, chiefly yeah. the British for a long time. And then the Americans after that, you know, the, the white colonial settler Americans. Um, because Irish is not etymologically connected to English, right? Or maybe it's not. No, loosely, is it even loosely Germanic at all? Or is very, it totally very, very distantly because it's yeah. it. It originally came um, by way. So so the, the ancient story of how Ireland got to be settled is that there was an old race of people that was here. And then there was a group of people who came over from Spain um, and they had a big battle. And eventually they decided that the uh, the Duatha de Danan would go under the earth and they would live in the other world. And the people who had arrived from Spain would live in Ireland and on sort of on top of the ground and the other ones would live under the ground. And that's a, a gross oversimplification. <laughs> but I mean, feel free to send me all the hate mail you like Irish people. You know, it's a conquest myth, right? You know, these are, yeah, the it's a, it's a conquest myth. Um, but that's sort of the, the roots of, of the Irish language came with what's believed to be those, you know, the people originally coming over from Spain. Um, and so then there's a lot of of influence as well from places like Scotland, from the the Gaelic in Scotland, um, and you know Irish is very close to what's spoken in Scotland, but obviously not the same um, as we're we're constantly yeah. <laughs> reminded. But that Iberian language of those people from Spain would have been pre-Latin, right? So that's a that's yeah. not related to uh, any kind of uh, you know Latin root that that. 
but it's still part of the the proto-indo-european family so it's still you know there's there's a lot of things that are similar but one of the things that i really find fascinating about irish is of the languages that i know it's the first language that has a different word order so english is very about that yeah english has very flexible word order and in irish the verb comes first um and the really cool thing about being here sort of learning the or listening to the the hiberno english is to listen to how sort of that structure of irish knowing that the verb comes first in irish and then listening to how they use english because a lot of times they'll put the verb first even in english um so it'll be like have a cup of tea will i you know, yeah. so it's it's that verb first, and you're like, oh, it's so fun to know where that structure came from. Is it, you know? I wonder if you will get to the point where, and you may already be there, where you read an author and you can go, this author is Irish because I know that they also have this impulse towards the syntax that is Irish. You know, I, I'll come across that when I'm reading authors uh, whose you know native language is Spanish, and the syntax mm. is just different enough. Uh, that you know, and, and similar enough to French, it might not be Spanish necessarily, but you know, like the where that's like one of the romance languages, impulse, you know, to go. Oh, I'm going to. I, I in English we have so much flexibility, and so mm-hmm. what we choose to do reveals something about you know about us, you know, and and you can say the blue house or the house which is blue, and they both you know they both work. Mm-hmm. And when I hear somebody who is saying uh, you know the house which is blue or the house that is blue, I'm going oh okay, this is because the person wants to think like they want mm-hmm. to, to put the syntax in what is comfortable for them yeah that the that the noun comes first in their mind yeah. and they had, then they have to bring in the modifier kind of after the fact yeah or what would be to an english speaker's mind after the fact right right uh you know yeah that, my, my impulse for as a you know english speaker first would be blue house right but mm-hmm. yeah so verb first which I wonder if there's, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's been some, I mean, it's it's Ireland. There's amazing scholarly research on everything related to Ireland and Ireland. <laughs> you know, you've got thousands of years of people studying, uh, you know, uh, in, in these amazing universities. But I'll bet you there's been some really great research done on the impact of verb first thinking, right? Mm. Uh, you know, because it, it would change the way you'd think about how, how we interact with one another. Like it is, is putting, is hiding the verb uh, you know, mm. passively, uh, it, that seems very Midwestern to me. <laughs> Midwestern <laughs> United States, like, I don't want to offend you. So I'm going to share as much information well, and before to a call to action. <laughs> you know? And I and I think the other thing is that um, English tends to be very sort of um, just by the nature of the way that we use nouns and pronouns, it tends to be very focused on the actor mm-hmm. rather than the action. So it tends to be almost... Um, I don't want to use the word aggressive. I, that's not, it, that's too strong of a word for what I'm thinking of, but it's, it's very much focused on like, you are a doer. Yeah. Um, rather than like an action happens, you know, it's, it's not passive, you know, there's not a passive t- construction the way that there is in English, the sort of, you know, like mistakes were made by zombies. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's that, you know, mistakes zombies made you know, or made, made mistakes, zombies, you know, yeah. kind of would be the made mistakes, zombies, <laughs> made mistakes, yeah. zombies. Oh, that's that does sound cool. like a chapter in my book though. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> um, so uh, what else was, was it like in, uh, in Bruges? That's, uh, that's the, you know, how, how did this, what was the language? Cause I don't even know the language there is unique, right? Um, so Bruges is in 
Belgium, which the has, to my knowledge, three official languages. And again, I apologize to any Europeans that I'm offending and getting this incorrectly, but I believe that they are French, Flemish, and German. And to my understanding, Bruges is in the primarily Flemish right. part of Belgium. Um, so, you know, I had no prayer of understanding what was well, going on. Yeah. Um, but most, you know, it, it is true that most Europeans speak some English. Um, sometimes they will do so less willingly than others. Yeah. But generally, if you're nice and, you know, they'll they'll try to help out. Um, and then the other thing is, um, I had been studying a little bit of French. So, you know, if if it was absolutely necessary, I could you know, say the three or four things that I knew in French and sort of muddle through. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, it was, it was, it was really gorgeous. Yeah, I think that's, that's I keep a, going back to that. It just stunning canals, beautiful architecture. It's the perfect place to go. If you are an older person who just wants a quiet vacation and you're not going to go on a million activities and, you know, you're just going to relax. And it's very much a, you know, walk the city and just look around, right? It's, oh, yeah. yeah. So like that's we didn't style. we didn't get a car or anything. We just got in a hotel and just walked everywhere. And it was, you know, you could get to everywhere you wanted. And there are some buses and trains. And it was easy enough. We flew into Brussels and then we took the train to Bruges. And the, the station for the train is in the bottom floor of the airport. So you don't even have to go anywhere. You just go down to the bottom floor and away you go. Yeah, uh, I I love those. You know, the, my idea of the way to see a city is just to walk it, like just walk mm -hmm. around and absorb. You know, but I would love to hear the Flemish. Like that is something that I don't know, and and that that would be interesting to you know just to have all around me. You know that that other. Uh, language group that I'm not used to. I'm, I'm this next year. I'm going to get to go to Southeast Asia for the first time, and I'm oh. really excited about you know walking around Bangkok and just hearing mm -hmm. what. How does you know? Uh, one of the things that it has taken me far too long to learn. I could have you know picked this up in a book or something and never did. Is that not only is the syntax different in languages, but even the pacing is cultural mm -hmm. cultural construction. And yeah, the prosody um, is different. Yeah. So one of my my favorite like nonsense pieces of trivia that I collected while I was studying linguistics is that babies cry in the prosody of their parents' native language. Really? That and so you can sense? you can take a newborn baby and they'll have they they had recordings of a French baby and a German baby and they just played the sound of their cries and you could hear the difference between this is the way that French babies cry and this is the way that German babies cry because wow. of where the stress falls in the language and sort of the the rhythm of the language. That is fascinating. Um, English is harder because English doesn't tend to, English is, you know, we, we, our stresses are just willy nilly all over the place. We don't really tend to worry about those pesky things like rules in our yeah. language. We're just any, anywhere we go, we're like, okay, we're just going to, you know, absorb pieces of this language and borrow this and take that and. Yeah, and and even rules like we will steal the structure of multiple languages. I tell my students, yes. like, you know, they're like, "Why well, is this, this is why... this way or that way?" And I'm like, "English is just mean." I know. <laughs> my the second my, language learners. My poor kiddo, when they're trying to learn spelling, and you know, they're like, "Why is this spelled this way?" I'm like, "Because English is stupid." Yeah, it's just cruel. Like, you know, why should you have to learn though and through and cough? Because English is mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's just cruel, you know. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, but I, I, I 
at the same time, English is wonderful for writers. It provides us with this incredible flexibility. It's, but it's, it's very, very hard flexible, for learners. Yes. Yeah. And I think just with with if you understand language in the in the idea of a tool is with any tool is the more you know about that language, the more you can understand like this is what it's really good for, and this is what I have to work around. And English is really helpful with that. Um, when I was in Iceland, some of the other artists that were staying at the residency where I was at were from Estonia. And so, you know, most of the time they would speak English to me, but then they would speak Estonian to each other, obviously. Um, and so that was really interesting. Um, and one of them spoke Spanish. So she and I would speak Spanish to each other, you know, and then we would speak English all together as a group. And then they would speak Estonian by themselves. So there was, you know, this this big mishmash of languages going on. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting is in Estonian, there's no third, there's no gendered third person. So there's no he, she. It's essentially all of the pronouns are a they pronoun where it's, you know, there's, it's not a gendered. It's, it's in the way that you, does this yeah, yeah. In the way that you or I isn't a gendered pronoun. Yeah. Third person isn't, isn't gendered as well. So they would talk about something and sometimes they would say he, and sometimes they would say she. And so, you know, as, as a a person who speaks English as their native language, and especially during our cultural moment, Mm -hmm. when people are so, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about which pronouns and how do we use them? And, you know, how do we respect, be respectful of other people and their identities and things like that. So having them sort of, you know, one minute, this is a he and one minute, this is a she like, it doesn't matter. You're just yeah. talking about another person and, and it doesn't matter. Well, and I, yeah, I, I do think that is one of, I mean, I, I remember reading about, I think it was in Sweden. They, uh, the, you know, they still have a, a formalized enough language and, and structure that the King could just say next year, the government will use this non-gendered pronoun in all of our public mm-hmm. documents. And then that becomes, you know, uh, so, you know, the, the the ability to enforce language in that way uh, can can you know lead to uh, regularity that we could never have in English and American. Yeah, English, there's but, there's uh, a lot of that that happens in places like Iceland because that's a place that I, I mean they're they're famous for the fact that you know they've they've retained so much of their linguistic history that they can still read ancient texts, um, and yet their language is robust and functioning, and so they have you know this this organization that sort of sort of Icelandicizes things when they come into the into Icelandic and, and so you know what do we call like a computer and what do we call the internet and yeah I, I know in Iceland you cannot name your child something that's not on the approved list like it's pretty, mm. you know you have to pr- that preservation it requires an activity like you have to actually say no you can't be outside the rules because we know if we let people start naming their kids anything pretty soon the Icelandic names will fall away and so yeah. nope, these are the well, approved names you know so the big the big trend in sort of the gender quality front of this particular thing is it used to be you know you'd be eric's son and, and eric you know, even all the women would be eric's son even though yep. they're clearly not eric's son and now they're they can also be you know the let's say alba's daughter yeah. so they would take you know the mother's name and the mother's and the daughter and yeah. thor's daughter you find a lot of you know yeah mm-hmm uh, but yeah. still, the the list of names is short, and then son, daughter. It's like so you're preserving, yep. you know, and 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 I love that that it there's a recognition that it does have to be flexible. It does have to change, but it's going to change communally. We are going to agree that like, it we're going to talk the, about this, yeah, and we're going to be thoughtful, and, and we're not just going to 
Whereas, you know, we we have a remarkably democratic system. Whatever takes off and people understand is correct. Like I have to tell students, you know, <laughs> why is it this word works? Because 51% of the population decided it worked. Uh, <sighs> and not even that, you know, it's very, very loose. Uh, but uh, the downside is it is a mishmash to learn. <laughs> it is a language created by a mob. You know, it's yes. crazy. Uh, so, yeah, but, but it is it is fun. Like I never get tired of learning new things about English language because it's so rich and bizarre uh, and it's wonderful for writers but gosh it's it's cruel to learners <laughs> oh yes so fun so you also have an interest beyond linguistics in virology which I want readers to know about because <laughs> of the books so uh, yes yeah, tell everybody about how you got interested in that um so I think I was I was always interested in diseases. Um, my grandfather was a doctor and my sort of first first love, first attempt at college, I was pre-med for a while and I was going to go into virology and, um, and apparently universities want money for this kind of thing. Um, so I joined the army instead because not only would they not require money to join the army they would pay me yes yes, um, yes which which sounded really good um and then they would also give me clothes and food and a place to live and it's a socialist organization yeah, it totally is yes this is socialism folks it's socialism yeah um so i i joined the army instead but i you know continued being really interested in diseases um i love reading um, one of the books that I read was Virus Hunters of the CDC. Um, I was reading another the one that was called Level 4. I've read things like um, The Demon in the Freezer, which is about the Ebola outbreak mm -hmm. in Reston, Virginia. Um, yes, there was an Ebola outbreak in Reston, Virginia. People I don't remember. know about it because ah, yeah, it let's just they, not talk about that. Yep. Yeah, I learned about uh, it after the fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all of all of that informed my writing. And so I had written Survivors Club, obviously before COVID was, you know, any anything. Um, and then it got published and then COVID happened. And I don't know. I'm still wondering <laughs> how that will affect my long term book sales. Right. Um, on the one hand, I think people are reading it and they're. I think they're okay with it now, but there was a time period where people are like, I don't want to read anything about viruses. I just, yep. I don't even want to hear about them. And for somebody who had written three books that are based around a viral apocalypse, that's not a great yeah, the timing like, marketing was, strategy. I, I so badly. I was like, oh, because there was this, you know, there was this brief time where I was like, this is going to be great. People are going to yeah. want to know about Survivors Club and they're going to be excited about, you know, this story. And then I was like, not while they're stuck in their homes. <laughs> no, nobody home. wants to read about that. Um, so maybe we are far enough away. And also when folks get to Ashfall, it, it's a, such a fantastic book, but it is very, very different from what we have all experienced. Like it's, mm. not, you know, hey, with a lockdown, you can prevent an outbreak of tentacled monsters like this is not, not the same so uh, i hope folks will go okay th this is fun and distinct enough that it is not you know bringing back my own personal trauma of being you know being on lockdown but it's really really fun so and maybe something like uh um the resurgence of uh, uh last of us will help folks yeah. go oh yeah i can i can see a story like that and not feel like it's you know 
my personal story. Uh, but yeah, folks should absolutely check it out because Ashfall is a kick. And I'm so excited to hear the third one is nearly done because uh, at the end Very of Ashfall, close. I am like, I am ready to grab that next one. So I know I saw somebody's review. I think it was something somebody had posted on Goodreads that said, I hope we don't have to wait another four or five years for the next book. And I'm like, uh... yeah, no pressure. <laughs> So I think um, what I will say about post-apocalyptic books is um, my my mom, her review was, uh, right, why don't you write happy things? And I was like, well, I'm not a happy person. So <laughs> yeah, but- also happy things are rarely interesting. Yes. Like this is one of those Anna Karenina kind of things where all the happy families are the same. Um, and it's not very exciting or interesting to write about. You're like, oh, and then nothing happened, and I had no worries, and life was great. Well, um, there, I mean, there's a there's a real legitimate argument to be made that because we need to write dramatic stories, we focus on you know the the, the horrors of life, and then because that becomes our entertainment we believe life should be more dramatic like we 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 downplay peaceful boringness as a virtue in our in mm-hmm. our art right because it's not interesting uh and you know i i wonder what effect that has on us as people where we're going you know i i you know if if somebody says how's it going and i'm like uh i'm doing you know nothing's been happening that sounds like a bad thing because all of our stories say life must be dramatic and you mm-hmm. know and miserable and it's like no sometimes uh, not much going on is would would be really nice <laughs> you know what but they, i think about they don't is... tell stories about it is I think about sort of um, when people have a little bit more bandwidth and, you know, during during the, the lockdowns, everybody was playing Animal Crossing. Everybody was watching, you know, Great British Bake Off. They're like, I want something that's cozy yep. and low stakes. Like that is all I can handle right now. And, you know, as we have moved on from you know, that level of the pandemic and gotten sort of more a little bit back to our, our normal level of life. I think I think you're right. I think people are more interested in, you know, okay, I'm I'm ready for a little mental challenge now. I'm ready to get back out there and in 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 a place where, you know, there are higher stakes. Um, but I it always reminds me of my grandparents talking about the entertainment during World War II. Um, and they were talking about how they would go to the movies and they're like everything was so grim and difficult and you know you were rationing and you know you had family members that were overseas and you had all of these issues that were going on and we're like we just wanted light fluffy everybody was dancing around you know these wonderful movies where it was just so much saccharine and fluff and you know you'd go to the movies and come out with a case of diabetes because it was just so sweet and lots of synchronized swimming like yeah you know like it was just here's pretty people in pools that's it (laughs) that's all no stress just you know go go bake some banana bread you're gonna be fine yeah yeah and i think there is merit to that and and like and and accepting it in ourselves like maybe this is what i need and that's okay you know Mm -hmm. and then when you're ready uh you know you, you can handle the challenging stuff but i also think the 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 impulse to say what is going to grab, you know, what is going to be grabby pushes us as artists to, you know, lean towards something that is more dramatic than is necessary. I find this in myself where I'm like, why is Mm -hmm. it that I keep pushing my stories to higher stakes? Because everybody's, you know, all the advice we've ever received about writing is, you know, raise the stakes, raise the stakes, raise raise the the stakes. 
And, uh, and then I'm going, what is that? What is the impulse? What is the impact of that on a culture, you know, where all the artists are saying, I need to have the highest possible stakes. And we end up with every movie we're seeing a city is destroyed by a supervillain. Yeah. That's not good for us psychologically. I, I will give a shout out to um, the person that I consider to be the godmother of all writing in Eugene, Oregon. She's, she um, helps to run a nonprofit called Word Crafters. Oh, I've heard um, of the group. Yes. Yeah. And she had, she did a class on plotting a novel, which, you know, was completely lost on me because I'm not a plotter, but the class was really good. And I think could have been useful to other writers who weren't me. Um And one of the things that she talked about was different levels of stakes. And she was talking about sort of stakes as seen through the point of view of how many people do you care about? And then upping the stakes would just be moving up different levels. And I'm, I'm, you know, just going to really summarize what I can remember of this class, which was probably about six or eight years ago. Um, But if you're at negative one, it means you don't even care about yourself. And so to up the stakes, your, you know, the journey through the story would be for you to learn to care about yourself. So somebody mm-hmm. who's, you know, maybe very depressed or, or, you know, suicidal or whatever the case is to rediscover that their life is worth living. Um, and then somebody who is already at that point where they care about themselves, now they have to learn to care about somebody else. So, you know, then they adopt a puppy or something like that. And, and so then once they can care about one other person, then they can care about a wider community and, and so forth and so on. So for me, one of the things that she said that was really interesting was she said, you know, you can't just jump from level negative one to level five, which is, you know, the entire universe. Yeah. Um, you, you have to go up gradually. And so if you're planning your, you know, your book series out that by the end of it, you know, they're going to be saving the entire universe. And they're at the beginning, they're starting out not even caring, then the stakes have to go up incrementally. They can't just jump from one level to the other. And I think that was such a good way of thinking about how to raise stakes incrementally in a realistic way that readers could kind of be on board with each thing. And they could see how the the character was concerned about a bigger and bigger sphere outside of just themselves. Yeah. Well, and I, 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 and I think, I think that is very useful for us when we're thinking about, you know, how to, how to raise stakes throughout a story. But I do wonder about how do we lower stakes in a, in a story, in a way that is satisfying and that says Mm -hmm. to readers, lowering the stakes in your life is okay. You know, (laughs) that you don't need to be, uh, uh, you know, saving the world tomorrow like and you know and at the same time not looking away i mean this is a tension that you know we all face on a day-to-day basis am i doing enough to you know fight the rise of fascism in my country Mm. and at the same time how do i stay sane how do we lower stakes and yeah you know and and, uh, you know and i because it always it always feels no matter what you are doing that the answer to am i doing enough to fight fascism it always feels like the answer has to be no Because it always feels like you could be doing more. Right. However, you are one person. Yeah. You cannot cannot single-handedly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and so, and, and so if the media I'm consuming says, well, the only way is to, you know, be a superhero. Is that unhealthy? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. we we don't see the people who are doing the little things and, you know, because that doesn't make for a compelling story. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm excited to see like Oppenheimer and see characters who have a small role and, you know, um, you know. Well, we're all excited to see Oppenheimer because of Killian Murphy. So yeah, yeah, obviously one of our, our homeboys here in Ireland. 
did you see his interview about Barbie? It's just a little <laughs> clip. Totally great. He's just delightful. Like he's this person where he can play the scariest villain, uh, but in person, totally nice guy. And he does this uh, this little interview where he's going, yeah, I think it's wonderful that everybody's excited about Barbie. I'm going to go see Barbie when it first comes out. Like everybody wants to go to the theater more. And you're like, he's nice. I like him. You know, he's, yeah, he's seems seems like a very nice guy. And then I watch Peaky Blinders and I'm like, and he's also terrifying. Um, yeah yeah <laughs> if folks have not seen peaky blinders uh worth your time he's he's remarkable in it too my son got me into that one my you know now 19 year old son he was maybe 16 17 he was like dad you got to watch peaky blinders and then i was watching yeah. it and i was going my 16 year old recommended this to me but it's really good and it's also and and then you as a parent you're like but he's learning history, so it's kind of okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'll convince myself that it's fine <laughs> that he's watching people, like, slash one another with razor blades. <laughs> it's, it's educational. Right, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's learning about the world, certainly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what about announcements? What's something that you are uh, wanting readers to know about right now? Oh, let's see. Um... Well, you had asked earlier about um, news, you know, what's what's in the news that's caught my attention. Um, and I used to live in Vermont and um, some of our listeners um, will know or remember that there's big flooding that is happening in Vermont. State of emergency has been declared, that wow. whole thing. It's supposed to be a thousand year flood, but they had a flood similar to that about 10 years ago. So I'm not a mathematician. But if you have 2,000 year floods 10 years apart, that's not a thousand year flood. Yep. This um, is be normal. Yeah. So I think the climate crisis, and um, I know some people don't think it's a thing, but if we continue doing not much, our kids and definitely our grandkids are going to really suffer. Yeah. Um, but- and, you know, honestly, we're already suffering. We've got record breaking heat waves. We've got um, a heat dome in Texas. We've got the floods in in Vermont. Um, I know even in Europe, not so much in Ireland. So the prediction for Ireland is that eventually it will become like Spain, mm. which the Irish are really happy about because they're like, well, then I won't have to fly for to Spain for my vacation anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although it will be more extreme weather. So it'll be yes. more often like Spain, but also with heat waves that kill your crops and and there's that are much colder than you're used to you're there's the 40s a cold, blue green wait. algae bloom that's happening yes. um and those are dangerous and you know there's i know that there's um been a lot of warming off of the coast of florida which you know yeah just almost anytime you say something about florida you're just like oh what now i was just talking to my brother yesterday about why are people buying you know, multi-million dollar condos in Miami, they will be underwater. Like there it is, it will not be a livable city uh, in a hundred years. And mm-hmm. yet people don't make financial decisions thinking I'm going to buy this condo and I have to deal with the consequences of the fact that, you know, more and more often it will flood. Well, eventually it will be underwater. Like, <laughs> will not, you know, um, and, and that is, we are at the point where that is inevitable. You are buying a, a you know, multi-million dollar condo that no one will be able to live in within a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, that's too far off. One of the things that I, I think about when I think about this is, you know, w- w- we've got the 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 it, what seem like two competing concerns. So we're talking about things like 
you know, the Supreme Court cases and this kind of rise of fascism and then the global climate crisis. And it seems like they're unrelated. And one of them is far off and one of them is more pressing. You know, this is the immediate and we need to mm -hmm. confront this. But the more I'm reading about it, the more I'm learning about the ways that they are, you know, intimately connected. So mm -hmm. the, uh, a lot of the rise of the, the far right in continental Europe came about because of droughts in Syria that led to, uh, you know, destabilization, that led to a wave of migration, that then led to a lot of folks in, in you know, Central Eastern Europe saying no more migrants uh, you know, we don't want to deal with cultural change of people moving into our communities. Therefore, we'll, you know, we'll embrace the far right. And mm -hmm. we're going to have a lot more climate refugees and the ways that we prepare our society to either be welcoming or exclusive, you know, that that seem like they are immediate political concerns rather than climate concerns are climate concerns. Like people will have to move. And what kind of society are we going to be that that says, welcome, you know, we made your home in uh, Ecuador unlivable. Mm -hmm. You are welcome here, you know, or- Well, and this is, this is the thing is the, the sort of the great inequality of it is the, the nations that are, you know, responsible for the majority of pollution, uh, you know, also tend to be more developed you know, economically richer nations. And so because we have more resources, we're we're gonna be able to insulate ourselves more from climate change. Not not totally, but you know, we'll we'll be comfortable for longer before we all fry. Um and then places where, you know, people have not contributed as much to climate change, they are also not going to have the economic resources to deal with the climate change that is happening to them, you know through yeah. little or no fault of their own. Yeah, and no fault. I mean, in some cases, you know, uh, islands in the South Pacific that mm -hmm. contributed not at all to climate change will be underwater. And those people will have to move to places that are going to say, that are already saying, we don't accept you. Australia saying to, you know, refugees from, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of those islands, you can't come here. Mm -hmm. You know, they need a place to go and they need a welcoming place that is going to take ownership. And, and this is how we get Waterworld. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's and so, you know, those, you know, the the fascism of water world is the fascism we are confronting today. Like, how do we change our culture to be welcoming and, and, and you know, and fight against the folks who are saying build a wall, you know, because yeah. build a wall is going to be even more relevant in 100 years. Um, or so. um, the other the other movie that I was thinking about, which deals sort of with um, fascism and and, you know, global climate issues is uh, Children of Man. Oh my Which, gosh, I love that movie so much. That's on that's yeah. on my top ten. If folks have not seen Children of Men, it is a it is a brilliantly like brilliantly made film. Just technically, there is a scene where um, uh, it's a single shot that's like twenty minutes long, which mm -hmm. is really hard to do, you know. And so, yeah, just watch that movie, Children of Men, a brilliant movie. But it will make you think. Uh, it's you know, what is it all worth if we're not taking care of our children? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, yeah, like. They, they really are the point. <laughs> if, if it's not for our kids, uh, everything falls apart. And you really see that in this really visceral way. So check out Children of Men. It's a brilliant. I'm going to make sure to add a link to it in the show notes as well. Yeah, I will. That. I will make a final linguistic related comment because I'm going to just turn every segment in, in this yeah. podcast into something about language. Um, so one of the things that um, I can't remember which of my teachers or which class we were talking about, we were talking about languages that don't have tenses. 
you know, so English has, you know, a past tense and a present tense, but English does not have a future tense grammatically. We make one right. by changing our wording. So we, we theoretically have one, but we don't grammatically have a future tense in English. Um, and there, the sociolinguistics, um, they had done sort of this study looking at how much money did people save. And they found that languages that do not have a grammatical future tense saved less than languages like Chinese, like Mandarin Chinese, which do have a grammatical future tense, which the idea is, you know, the future is a concrete part of your thinking rather than the future is sort of this, this muddly idea that your brain. So, you know, I love the superior wharf theory, the idea and, and to, you know, just summarize it horribly again in the tiny little bit is the idea that the, that the language that you have influences the way that you think. So if you don't have the words to articulate something, it is not impossible, but it is much harder to have that concept. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know there are concepts like uh, in in Spanish, existence has two different verbs, and mm -hmm. think about the the permanent condition of something existing or the temporary state, and that allows that everybody who is speaking Spanish is on a continual basis thinking to themselves, is this thing temp temporary or is this a permanent condition of, mm -hmm. uh, and it changes the way you think about things, and we just don't have so that. So Irish Irish has the same. So there's two. Like if you say there is. There are two ways to say there is something. You can say is, um, like there is, or you can say ta. And again, one is sort of like, this is, you know, it is a nice day just right now. Like the weather right, right now is nice. Or all of the weather for all time has always been nice. You know, it's that sort of habitual versus um, temporary condition. The other thing, okay, my final thing that I love about Irish not the final thing, but one of the final things I'll say in this podcast that I love about Irish is um, the way that they talk about emotion. And this has been, for me as a parent, is so helpful in talking about emotions with my kiddo because what they'll say in Irish literally means, um, I have I have this emotion on me. Like there is this emotion on me. So if you say, you don't, so in English, if you are sad, you say, I am sad, which means like you are personifying sadness like you yourself has have taken on the the idea of sadness or anger or any other emotion um you've identified yourself as that emotion whereas in irish they'll say i have sadness on me so the emotion is separate from you the emotion is just residing in the universe and then it comes down and settles on you for a little while and it, and then it can leave and it's and, probably far more comfortable to then share I, I hey i need you to know that sadness has settled on me um, mm -hmm. but I don't have to, oh, that, that doesn't become my identity. This is something I need to convey to you because I'm wearing this right now. Uh, and you know, that, that is really cool. I like that a lot. Sadness. I love it. Well, and I think we can bring that into English. I mean, that's the kind I, I'll bet you again, I bet you find, I, uh, you know, Irish writers writing in English will be more inclined to say, you know, a deep sadness settled upon her, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, because they were thinking in that way and that that is healthier, I'll bet it makes people more inclined to share how they're feeling. That would be interesting to talk with a therapist in Ireland. <laughs> Do they find people actually are, or are they, you know? Uh... I don't know. So, so my spouse and I have a, have a theory um, that Irish, that being Irish, they tend to be very, seem like a very cheery and optimistic sort of people. And my theory is that 
if you were not of a cheery and optimistic disposition, your genes would not have survived the history yeah. of Ireland to this point. So the selection process for Irish people yes, has been you, eliminated you must the be dower. of a cheery disposition. Yeah, that's 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 grim and probably very true. <laughs> the, the people who were, you know, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the most sour were like, uh, nope, I cannot handle this. Or they left. I mean, that's the other thing is the people who. Yeah, well, that's I mean, my cheers. own family, you know, they they left during the Great Famine and yeah. came to the U went to the U.S. and that's. So it's, quarter, it's very interesting of my sort of making the trip. Is people who left uh, Ireland during the famine, and then you know, another quarter is people who left continental Europe because they were Jewish and were you know afraid of what was coming. And yeah, so I, I'm I'm a composition of people who went. We're getting the hell out. <laughs> 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 Which now you know, I think about you know as much as I have envied you moving to Ireland, I'm like. I am feeling that in my in my genetics. Like I need to get. Mm -hmm. like, I think there's a part of uh, you know some of us that goes. This is the the you know the, the wiser, healthier response uh, is uh, you know this is not a safe place. This is what I do when it's not a safe place. We get out. You know. Yeah. And well, also, and, and where you're living looks gorgeous. So that's you know, it's it's really hard to us. argue with it. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's really great. Um, but I am going to, I'm going to steal that. I like that a lot. The, this, this feeling is upon me. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, one of the other things we do each week, we have a weekly poll that we put up on Twitter and now threads and, you know, all the various places that the company has a, uh, an account. So, uh, what would be your poll that you would want to ask the public for their, 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 them to weigh in on? Hmm. All right. Public. What I need your help with is deciding steampunk or dystopia. Oh, that will be interesting. Yes. And that would be interesting. Maybe we should run that poll every few years because I think it changes. <laughs> I think the, these go through waves. But yes, as of right now, where are folks at? Steampunk or dystopia? So we'll, when you're hearing this show, hop over to our page and uh, cast your vote for that one. And what's a book that's in your to-read pile? What are you looking forward to checking out when you finish the Inheritance Trilogy and the uh, the, the uh, Greenbone Saga? Yeah, no, I'm I'm a, I'm a very promiscuous reader. Um, I am not loyal to any book series, but I I'm also very determined. So once I start a series, I will finish it. It just sometimes I will get distracted. Um, so the thing that I'm looking forward to reading is Babel. Um, by RF, um, I'm probably RF going Quang. to not say Quang. Um, Quang. I have, yeah, I've I have, I've never actually heard the author's last name said out loud, and I feel yeah, no, I, I don't know. I could I very well could be wrong, it. but uh, yeah, I, I think it's Quang, but I'm not sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I have, but you're not the first person who's recommended that to me, so I'm going to have to check that out as well. It's fantasy, right? Yeah. It's a fantasy series um, or fantasy book. Yeah, book. so it's a fantasy series. It's actually about magic and linguistics. To no one's surprise. Yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> um, checks but all I the, loved uh, the, the Molly boxes. Yes. I, I loved her series. It starts out with Poppy War. Um, and it's it's sort of about um, you know, um Harry Potter. It, it's sort of that um military academy kind of, you know, we go through this this school and training process and then eventually become soldiers and get involved in this war and a lot of really interesting fight scenes and magic systems and having to do with, um, you know, gods and deities and spirits and all of this. And it's, it's such a fantastic series. So I love her as a writer. 
And then um, when she came out with a book where it's like linguistics and magic, I was like, so you just wrote this for me then? Yeah, 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 exactly. I will, yeah, I will love that. I will have to check that out. Um, speaking of linguistics, this is not a book recommendation, but uh, if you want to check out a linguistics podcast that is always excellent and really fun, The Illusionist with an A, not illusion. Yes, I, yep. Have you, have you listened? It's so great. Uh, so yes, The Illusionist is one that I highly, highly, highly recommend. Uh, I got to see her live. She came to uh, to Portland uh, and did a show. Very funny about i'm so jealous yeah and it was about the uh the the way uh uh ms miss and mrs have changed over time and then mm-hmm. mx you know and uh it was it was a re- it was really cool and she manages to make it very funny so yes people check out the illusionist it's really cool uh so where can listeners find you so that they can find out about uh you know your your writing and where to find the next book um, so most of my information is up on my website, which is uh, mkmartinwriter.com. And if you're on Facebook, you can find me at mkmartinwriter. And if you're on Mastodon, I'm on Writing Exchange at mkmartin. If you're on Twitter, mkmartinwriter. So I've just, I've tried to make it as easy as possible consistent yes uh, and so yep. i will uh, and i'll link to all those in the show notes so anybody who's listening right now or you're watching on youtube it's in the show notes uh but yes uh, absolutely follow follow molly so that you are ready for book three when that drops okay so i should thank some folks before we uh, have our send-off uh thanks to uh, artist max oakland who reached out and provided one of his songs for our intro i prefer the dusk let max know you like it by following him on twitter at max oakland with three d's and thanks to Halizna CCO for their song Kids for the ad break. If you're in a band and you'd like your song used on the show, I would love to highlight a listener's work like Max's song. So email that to me. Thanks. Excuse me. Thanks. to Sorry, Doug. Right then I cough, which is something else you have to edit out. Thanks to Doug, the producer, for making this show sound good and taking the blame when it doesn't. I cannot forget to mention Writers Not Writing is a production of Not A Pipe Publishing. So please go to notapipepublishing.com and check out the amazing books written by writers who didn't procrastinate too much. If you like this show, rate and review it wherever you found it. And please check out Molly's The Survivor's Club Chronicles. Starts with Survivor's Club and then continues in Ashfall. Uh, Tell a friend about it. That always is very helpful. Give that book that fifth click, you know, click on that fifth star. That makes a big difference. Uh, And then write a short review. Uh, If you've got three minutes, you will make Molly's day. So uh, please do that. And if you like this show, click on that little thumbs up. uh, That would help us as well. So uh, Molly and I have three things we want you to remember for this next week. Molly, what's your first piece of advice for everybody? So what I would like is for you to use your powers to protect the vulnerable, use your voice to uplift those who've been silenced, and shop locally where possible. Shop local. Uh, I agree with all of those. And I would say, uh, remember this next week that a book without spaces would be gibberish and our lives need spaces too. So don't ignore the spaces. And third, no matter how much you procrastinate, we're still proud of you. Yay! My time. My time.